morning and welcome back to Rising. I have the thrill of being joined again at the desk by Sir Michael Singleton, who is filling in for Robbie while he's on vacation, traversing the ruins of the Roman Empire. How many, how many times a day do you think of the Roman you know, Empire? I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a little jealous of, of Robbie. I mean, that, that's a fun trip, Bree. But, Robbie, I'm happy to be sitting in for him. Uh, Bree, it's good to be back with you. I mean, last week we had a ball. We did have a ball. And I think the next few days we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so looking forward to it. All right. Well, sure, Michael, we have a, a good uh, schedule up ahead of us. A new round of 2024 polling. Again, spelling out trouble, warning signs for the Democrats. And a 2024 generic matchup, President Biden trails behind former President Donald Trump by a whopping 10 percentage points in a new ABC News Washington Post poll. The Washington Post makes it a point to say that this poll is likely an outlier, quote, although the sizable margin of Trump's lead in this survey is significantly at odds with other public polls that show the general election contest a virtual dead heat. The difference between this poll and others, as well as the un unusual makeup of Trump and Biden's coalitions in this survey, suggests it is probably an outlier. According to Larry Sabeto of Sabeto's Crystal Ball, however, there's nothing to see here. He says a, the polling is a ridiculous outlier. I'm not sure if many people agree with Dr. Sabato, but why are voters so dissatisfied with Biden in this survey? The survey points to the growing discontent over the president's handling of the economy and immigration, a rising share of the public saying the United States is doing too much to aid Ukraine in its war with Russia and broad concerns about his age as he seeks a second term. Meanwhile, over at NBC News, a separate poll spelled out more warning signs for the Biden camp. Let's check in. This, as our new poll shows, the president's approval among black voters is down 17 points since the first year of his presidency. Mr. Biden is also down by double digits among Latinos, voters without a college degree and independents. And as we mentioned, 59 percent of Democratic primary voters tell us they want to see a challenger to President Biden. What the polling does appear conclusive on is that voters are over the idea of another Biden-Trump matchup. Survey respondents told NBC they had major concerns over the health and age of the two leading candidates. White House spokesman Ian Sam said on the recent polling rounds, meanwhile, in other polling news, NBC finds that people oppose House Republicans' impeachment stunt by nearly 20 points, 39 percent support, 56 percent oppose, and by 13 points say backing impeachment makes them less likely to support their congressperson. Okay. Bree, this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. <laughs> I wonder what you make of this idea that most people don't want a Biden-Trump matchup. And yet, even though Republicans are having an open primary, yeah. unlike Democrats, polls still suggest that in that context, Trump is still pulling still ahead. Pulling you guys ahead. have an option. Why is nobody picking an option other than Donald Trump? I mean, because I, I think most have recognized and have found it to be conclusive that Trump is nearly impossible to beat in the Republican primary. I mean, Trump is arguably with his 37 percent, you add some who are sort of in the middle, if you will, that gives the guy close to 60 percent. If every single Republican dropped out of the race, Donald Trump would still be ahead if he only had one matchup by at least 15 percentage points. I find that to be uncoverable. Yeah, I mean, it's unrecoverable, like a, a, I should say a, a little bit of a circular logic. I mean, is it just a candidate choice issue at the end of the day that the presumed front runner against Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, hasn't been able to tap into something real that the predictions that when he became more prominent on the public stage and people actually heard the words coming out of his mouth and his yeah. voice? He was he just wasn't that likable. He didn't seem to have that energy. He didn't inspire confidence in the same way Donald I Trump mean, had. I mean, I think. 
Ron DeS Governor DeSantis should have waited until 2028. That was always my position. I, I think that most Republican voters want to give Donald Trump a second chance. Regardless of what your views may be on the 2020 election results, many people think that he should have been reelected. Many Republicans don't think the election was fair. I'm not saying I believe that. That's what many voters believe. And so with that in mind, they want him to return to the White House. And I think, Bree, uh, a lot of Americans probably I would argue, want to see Trump return, at least from an economic perspective. Maybe they dislike the tweets, they dislike the, the rash behavior, the unpredictability. But I think there's buyer's remorse with Joe Biden. Joe Biden was supposed to merely be a placeover, in part because of the COVID pandemic. A lot of things went wrong with the economy. I understand why people wanted someone else. But Biden went in, and he's tried, in my opinion, to have a very progressive agenda. I think most Americans are center-leaning. Uh, he selected a vice president that is highly unpopular, did not win a single contest during the primary, didn't even have substantial support among black voters, uh, yet the guys was that we're choosing her because we need black voters. I don't know how that makes any <laughs> logical sense. And so I think when you, you break all of those layers down, people are saying, you know, you were merely to be a placeholder for four years. That's it. You went too far. We want somebody else. And that somebody else happens to be Donald Trump. I mean, I think all of that is true, except for the polls suggest that people don't want a Biden-Trump matchup. It's not just about Joe Biden. But when you asked him about Trump, Trump is doing better than Biden. Well, I think that Trump has more enthusiasm among his base than Biden does. But uh, this poll I'm looking at from Axios is 88 percent mm -hmm. of Democrats say they definitely probably will vote for Biden if he's yeah. the nominee. So I do think Democrats, and I don't think this is a positive attribute, I think it's part of why we never get or they, the Democrats never get good candidates. But they are very vocal no matter who. At the end of the day, no matter how distasteful it is, they'll pull the, the lever for Biden. And Biden, for all of his faults, most of the, the reason why Democrats don't want him to be the candidate, it's not really substantive. It's largely because he's old. Donald Trump has some cohort, it's a meaningful cohort of the Republican Party, who's over the indictments, sure. over the messiness, the personal scandals, the having to have a discussion with your kids about the porn star all that stuff, it's just people are, are over having to deal with it. And so he has, I think, a much fierier base, but also this hunk of disaffected people as well. Um, I, I want to talk about some of the discrete populations that Biden is struggling sure. with for a second. Um, he's down double digits with both Latino and black voters and Young. independents. All um, cohorts and young voters. And young voters. Mm -hmm. We talked about this a few weeks ago that there was a poll that nobody really discussed that showed that Marianne Williamson is barely behind Biden with young yeah. voters. I mean, they're neck and neck in the 30s, if I recall correctly. So, you know, to what do you attribute that and do you think there's any recovering from that? I mean, I think when Trump ran in 2020, I believe he received around 37 percent of the Latino vote. Mm. That can't be overlooked. His numbers with black voters, particularly black men, he did better than John McCain, better than Mitt Romney. So say whatever you want to say about Donald Trump, but clearly there is an appeal there. And I think for men, generally speaking, this idea of strength does resonate with a lot of men, regardless of race. And I think a lot of black men and a lot of Latino men do not feel that they're properly represented by the Democratic Party. I, I, I just think it's true. And yeah, when you go to many barbershops across the country, you hear everything about women, and I don't have anything against women. I think you know women are important just as men are, <laughs> but, but, but 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 not <laughs> but not to the effect that men shouldn't have our priorities met. Oftentimes, Bree, we've seen this interesting conversation within the black community in particular about black women being more 
college educated than black men and, and black men not doing enough to be responsible in the community. And I think there's a growing segment of black men saying, so wait a minute here, that's not necessarily true. And then you have Republicans who are saying, well, we're pro-men and we're going to stand up for masculine values and masculinity. That resonates not only with me as a college educated man who happens to be black, but I think it resonates with a lot of men, white, black, Latino, Asian, who are college educated and who aren't college educated. So I, I think that I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think that obviously you're right about the polls and Trump having more appeal than other Republicans with black voter, black male voters in particular. Mm -hmm. It is worth knowing that is still a very small number. Sure. Um, I think it's like in the low teens uh, of black men that voted for Donald Trump with, you know, 80 plus percent still voting for the Democratic Party. But I do think that what Trump accurately tapped into was a resentment that black voters have with the Democratic Party, because I do agree with the piece that you said about the Democratic Party ignoring the needs and interests of black people and uh, specifically black men. Yeah. I do think that there is a way that the rhetoric has largely centered around issues like maternal health rate. I think that black women have been really core to a lot of the organizing efforts, and there has been historically an erasure of black women from civil rights efforts and the like. And so there has been an, perhaps an overcorrection. So? Yeah, I don't. I don't. As a black man, I don't see that. I think everything has been about and centered around black women. I'm, I'm saying historically. So in the 1960s, yeah, but what about part now, of why though? Well, that's what, I, what I'm describing is that now there's been an overcorrection mm -hmm. by black women who okay. felt dismissed okay. about the, in the 1960s okay. and 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so and that has resulted in some black men. And I've had many conversations with black men casually in the world where they feel this resentment about being ignored. And when Joe Biden says things like, I'm not going to give you a black agenda, you simply ain't black. He said this to Charlemagne the yeah, God's face. If you don't vote for me, like, who are then you? that resentment has to go somewhere. And then Donald Trump heard what was going on and said out loud, what has the Democratic Party done for you lately? He Janet Jacksoned it, and he was right. I mean, he, he was right. I mean, if you go to any major black urban city across the country, crime is rampant. You look at economics, jobs are really not frankly there. The infrastructure is terrible, and most of these cities are, have been led by Democrats for decades. So it's like, why would I keep, as a black person, continue to vote for the same party over and over and over again, and the results have remained the same for 50 years? Now, I'm not saying Republicans are necessarily perfect. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think people should vote for Republicans that they do believe meet their expectations and the, their specific agenda for that individual community. Uh, but I think to continue to do the same thing over and over again is the definition of insanity. And so to the point that you raised, though, about Trump having support in the low teens with black men, which I believe is around 12 percent, Bree, that 12 percent may seem insignificant. But if Biden sees a de if the decrease that we're looking at maintains for Biden, and some of those battleground states, of black men just staying home, completely disengaging from the process, that is absolutely beneficial to Donald Trump because I believe that 12 percent could potentially become 13, and even if it remains 12, I think they'll turn out. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll have to wait and see what the actual outcome is. Yeah. Uh, I think we ran out of time uh, talking about this stuff, but we'll have a lot more on some other polls that have some interesting things pretended about third-party candidates after this. Stick around, more rising coming up. We've got some breaking news. British police have opened an investigation into rape and sexual misconduct allegations made against comedian Russell Brand. In a statement on Monday, today, London's Metropolitan Police confirmed that following an investigation by Channel 4's dispatches in the Sunday Times, 
The Met has received a number of allegations of sexual offenses in London, the force said in a statement today. Again, we have also received a number of allegations of sexual offenses committed elsewhere in the country and will investigate these. The offensive offenses are all non-recent, it added. In a video posted to Rumble on Friday, Russell did not directly address these allegations, but he directed his followers to stream his next episode of Stay Free on Rumble, which he posted a link to on X, formerly Twitter. I mean, Bree, this is the formal process that you and I discussed, and the allegations are serious, which we both agree to, and I want the process to take its course. I mean, again, he, he should have his moment of time in court to defend himself. But if the allegations do turn out to be true, then there, there should be repercussions. Yeah. So um, previously, Russell Brand has pointed out, he's, he said, these allegations pertain to the time when I was working in the mainstream, when I was in the newspapers all the time, when I was in the movies. And as I've written about extensively in my books, I was very, very promiscuous. Now, during that time of promiscuity, the relationships I had were absolutely always consensual, he says. Now, there's going to be an investigation yep. that gets into the bottom of those claims. We do know that one of the victims went to a rape crisis center following her interaction um, with uh, Russell Brand. So there is some kind of contemporaneous evidence here. Um, and I do think that this will be, frankly, beneficial to the discourse, to the extent that that matters, if we don't have to rely on our kind of personal feelings yeah. of, is this Which right is or is this I wrong, or do prefer. I believe or do I not believe? Yeah. Um, and if there is actually... If there are actually criminal charges and a conviction, then I do think that gives social media companies or advertisers or what have you more legitimate standing oh, to absolutely. say, I don't want to work with this person. I don't mm -hmm. want them to be able to monetize on these apps. I don't think that changes much about what I think are the free speech rights to be on the app. <laughs> uh -huh. I do uh -huh. have a problem with the idea that because someone has gone through the criminal justice system, because they've been convicted of a crime and even served their time, that they should no longer be able to use what are now constructively public forums. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you should still be able to be on the forum and advertisers can decide if they want their dollars going behind mm -hmm. someone who was convicted of some type of a crime, if it does come to that. Uh, but again, this is what I've always advocated for. I, I've always believed that Russell Brand should have his fair day in court. And I think most people are saying before we judge him or rush to conclusion, let's look at all of the evidence. And as you stated, we know that there is at least a, a pretty serious track record of one of the victims going immediately to a rape crisis center. That is evidence that cannot be overlooked, even by individuals who may want to come to Russell's aid. We have to be as open-minded with assessing all of the evidence, just as we want others to be open-minded about proclaiming his guilt. Yeah, I, I'm curious about whether or not there are any statute of limitations that may affect this In case. Seemingly, there are not. I was trying to give mm. a quick Google, um, and I'm not, um, nothing immediately comes up. But it is interesting. There is this um, note by the London police that none of these cases are recent. They're all non-recent cases. Which he sort of alluded to in his statement. Yeah, and I, you know, the... This is what's so tricky about it. I think it can be the case that he behaved badly and did things that he might be criminally liable for, and also that the timing of these investigations coming after he has no longer been useful to the mainstream, you know, starring in mainstream movies, yeah. being in mainstream contexts, but instead having taken this path toward, you know, calling truth to power, singling out elites, 
the things that he does do on his show, yeah. that's the t moment where they decide to raise these non a lot, allegations. I think, I think that's a good point. A lot of people will, will see this and they will say, do I really trust it? I mean, if all of this stuff occurred years ago, why now? And to your point, Bree, is it only because he's criticizing Hollywood or mainstream media or mainstream political figures? And I think we do see a very interesting pattern of people who were no longer useful. I think about Kanye West, and I'm not saying that I agreed with his statements at all, mm -hmm. particularly the anti-Semitic ones, but people see this pattern of celebrities who decide that they no longer want to be in the in crowd, criticizing the in crowd, and the end result usually being negative for them, whether it's financially or in Russell Brand's case, potentially even jail time. Yeah. I mean, I do, I've said this on the show before. I do think that they're, and I, I'm trying to work through this. Yeah. I do, yeah. I just, I do want to say sometimes there is a push for people to have takes that I mm -hmm. think is really destructive to the discourse. I am always trying to vet and, and, and test my own views for ideological consistency. So if I'm raising a hypothetical, it's because I genuinely don't know how I feel, and I'm trying to work it through. And that's why I raised certain issues with Max Blumenthal last week, and I continue to do them, because my gut says that there's something wrong with unbanking Kanye West. I also found his yeah. remarks to be deplorable, but my gut says that a bank is more akin to a public utility. And if we are in the position where those kind of basic services, like banking services, water, power, internet access, use of public tolls on the mm -hmm, highway mm -hmm. are stripped from you because somebody somewhere tells you like, doesn't like you or your past behavior, even if I agree that I don't like your past behavior, that seems to be too subjective and really dangerous and liberty yeah. stripping yeah. in a fundamental way. And my question that I'm still wrestling with is whether or not being allowed to monetize a YouTube account is the same, whether that is more akin to an employer being able to fire an employee because they violated you know, workplace behavior yeah. or they, the optics are bad and customers and don't want to work with you if you're, you're there. an employee of no. the entity. But even contract employees, let's say, I, I brought up to Robbie last week in like a an Uber driver yeah. context. Does Uber have a right to say, you know, you, you're very publicly now being known for this bad behavior. We don't want you driving our cars anymore. It makes us look bad as a company. I, I don't know. I'm still wrestling with whether yeah, I think sure, that's on sure. par with saying someone can't use a bank. But I do believe that it's a slippery slope. And what is unambiguous is that the U.S. government coming out and trying to pressure companies to come out one way or the other. Which we know is from the Twitter files, it, it is indefensible. And I would say, you know, there's nothing like this isn't a serendipitous moment, I think, for the average layperson looking at what's going on with Russell or whether it's Kanye West or a whole host of other, or even Elon Musk and what, what he's going through right now. And many Democrats saying that he should not have been able to purchase t Twitter now. X, he has too much power. Well, he didn't want to purchase um, Twitter. Remember, he tried to back no, out he, last minute. No, he minute. did. He did. And, and they wouldn't <laughs> allow him to. And so I, I think you're, you're right. I think. We really got to sort of figure out, Bree, in terms of utilization of these social media sites and generating revenue from them. If a person partakes in some type of bad behavior or behavior that typically or may lead to some type of a conviction, should they not still be able to partake in that utility? I'm not certain if I would disagree with that because I'll give you an example. I do a lot of firearm stuff. There are a lot of guys who have been convicted of crimes in the past. They now have some of their rights back. They have the legal rights to own guns. Some of these guys create content on YouTube to promote firearm education and proper usage. Should those guys not be able to partake in the utility of YouTube and then generate revenue? I think they should. 
But should there be limits? I'm not exactly certain on that. Yeah, I'm inclined. I'm inclined toward more leniency, yeah. um, especially if I'm yeah. if I have ambiguity, I would rather incline toward allowing people to have kind of maximal freedoms. I also I think that, that people well. who are convicted and have served their time shouldn't have their franchise rights stripped away from them. Um, I think. You know, we were talking about Hunter Biden and the mm -hmm. gun charges a lot and what people are allowed to do after they've made these kind of mistakes in yeah. their lives. And I would love to see some of the commitment that we're seeing out of the right to individual liberties extend toward the franchise and having felons be able to participate in democracy again. Well, and some did, like like the Koch Foundation. They were, they promote allowing uh, convict formerly convicted felons to have their voting rights restored. So there are some of us yeah, on, but on after the right. The, I think there was a ballot measure in Florida to it failed, I believe. No, I, it's the Republican legislature who attacked the ballot measure. I think yeah. the people well, voted to re-enfranchise, but there was a political battle and, and, over and that. And we so. talked about this earlier. Sometimes I think there there is a difference between Republican and conservative voters and the actual Republican representatives yeah. that represent yes, us. 100%. And, and I think most conservative voters would agree that if you've done your time and you're a productive member of society, then you should have your rights restored. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will have no shortage of conversations about how elected representatives don't reflect the interests <laughs> of the people they represent <laughs> right. here on this show. Please stick around. We'll have a rising for you right after this. Russell Brand spoke out publicly Friday, the first time since being accused of rape and other forms of sexual misconduct. Let's take a look. Obviously, it's been an extraordinary and distressing week, and I thank you very much for your support. I also don't imagine you've heard of the Trusted News Initiative. Now, as is often the case when a word like trusted is used as part of an acronym to describe an unelected body, trust is the last thing you should be offering. The Trusted News Initiative is a collaboration between big tech and legacy media organizations to target, control, choke, and shut down independent media organizations like this one. He didn't specifically address the claims, which he's denied, but instead talked about the British government's effort to censor him, which he said he will be talking about on his show uh, today on Stay Free on Rumble. According to reports, various companies like Burger King, ASOS, HelloFresh, to name a few, pulled their advertisements from the video platform Rumble, where the comedian hosts his program, and which did not comply with the UK's request to cut ties with him. Brand has vehemently denied the onslaught of allegations of which he has not yet been formally charged or found guilty. Mm. And that's an important point for a lot of people. It that is. Even if they believe The presumption believe of that, innocence. Yeah, that there is credibility to some of these accounts, that there's corroborating evidence for many of these accounts, that he could have done a lot of bad things, that prematurely having these kind of... Um, uh, being targeted in these ways financially prior to there being any investigation of a criminal or informal type, and especially when so many of the allegations are anonymous, seems preemptive. And it seems yeah. like it's geared towards something other than justice for the victims. It seems to be about punishing him and his platform and his ability to reach people talking about issues other than yeah. anything having to do with the sexual assault. Well, I mean, assault. but look, this is what happens when you have a society where everyone just immediately reacts and these knee-jerk reactions without having all of the facts, all of the evidence. And from the company's perspectives, I don't necessarily blame them. I don't agree. But at the end of the day, they have to look at their bottom line. And HelloFresh or Burger King or ASOS, they don't want their consumers 
striking, saying, you know what, we're no longer going to purchase burgers from Burger King or we're no longer going to order our deliveries from HelloFresh. So they're trying to be on the side of the public. Uh, but I think it's just really dangerous. As I stated a week ago, Bree, you have to be careful without making judgment, without all of the evidence. And we have no clue if months from now, if some of these folks may retract their statements, we don't know the credibility of the individuals that are making these allegations. I mean, do they have drug issues, criminal I mean, all of those things have to be, I'm not saying they do, but those things have to be raised, and I think fairly so. Well, I don't know that I, that would materially affect the perception oh, of this. Oh, you would raise it in a court of law. Well, of course you would in terms of credibility. Since, especially since Russell Brand himself has had many issues with addiction. And I sure. think he's talked about how some of his behavior, his misogynistic behavior in the past, was mixed up in his lack of control. But misogynistic being, behavior uh, doesn't necessarily go as far as breaking the law. Right, and that's the argument that he's made. But he's very much copped to, there, I don't think there's a dispute about the fact that he had the relationship with the 16-year-old, for mm -hmm. instance. It is legal in the UK. The question is whether or not that behavior is perceived to be immoral enough for there to be repercussions of an, on financially. So I want to get back to the point that you made earlier. I tend to agree that advertisers have the right to do what they want to do yeah. to protect what they think their brand interests are. If Burger King or HelloFresh or whomever uh, feels like it's appropriate to no longer run ads on his programming, that's fine. I do think that they're doing something different, though. They're not saying, I don't want you to run ads on Russell Brand's show. They're saying, we don't want to run ads on Rumble, period. And that feels like an effort to punish Rumble for being a platform yeah. that's unwilling to kick off Russell Brand or to demonetize Russell Brand, which takes us to this other piece, which is the demonetization. What this starts to feel like, when you, when you read, go back to the letter, remember last week mm -hmm. we talked about there was this letter from um, the House of Commons in London, their Culture, Media, and Sports Committee. Yeah. And what they specifically said was, this is a quote from their September 19th letter, while we recognize that TikTok is not the creator of the content published by Mr. Brand, and his content may be within the community guidelines set out by the platform, we are concerned that he may be able to profit from his content on yeah. the platform. As I so stated, they're, they're it's about his finances. They so, want to destroy yeah. this guy economically. So they're, they're recognizing that there's no violation of the standards that these companies actually have for the content on the platform. They're explicitly saying, we just don't like who you are off the platform. Yeah, pretty much. And we feel like we should be able to control whether or not you're able to earn an income as a consequence of that. And this do does then start to feel like a kind of a... I'm sorry, like a labor rights issue. Do we want to be in a place where a government can try to coerce a company into firing an employee not because they violated any of the policies mm -hmm. of the company, but because there have been accusations, many of them or all of them anonymous, that have not been vetted in a court of they law? They haven't been proven. They have not been proven. They have not withstand or withstood cross-examination from Russell Brand's potential defense attorneys if it were to go before a judge and a jury. Um, I think this is dangerous territory. And while there are some people who are going to applaud uh, these efforts uh, of the gov UK government, and some would want to see the same thing in the United States under the guise of protecting victims or protecting society from individuals like Russell Brand, my rebut to those individuals would simply be this. What happens when the day comes when someone believes your language goes too far or your behavior goes too far. Then they say, well, you know what? We should utilize your compulsory force, the entire force and pressures of the government, 
on, an, on a private company or publicly traded company to censor you. So then you have to start asking the question when you start breaking down the layers here, where is the line? Or, if, or is there not a line? It's just a, the line just doesn't exist depending on who's sort of pulling the strings of government at that particular time and their views on a host of social issues or political issues or economic issues. I mean, I, I think we're in very dangerous territory here, Bree. And while those who may be opposed to Russell Brand may be applauding this, I would just issue a warning to them and say, your day may sometime be soon. Yeah, I mean, the one distinction that I would make between my own view and some of the people who are defending Brand is that I don't think—I think that sometimes the presumption of innocence kind of legal language gets overextended to individuals. I think mm -hmm. individuals are well within their right to come to some conclusions sure. and decide to not want to support Rumble or not want to support or watch Russell Brand. When I hear Megyn Kelly, and I think Candace Owens also speaking passionately about how um, distasteful, how disgusted they are by the notion that he was in a relationship with a teenager, with a 16-year-old when he was in his 30s. I don't think that we need a court of law to vet that that was true. That that happens. It's not yeah, illegal. Sure, I don't happens. like it either. But that doesn't mean that the wait, guy should be censored from. Well, wait Rumble. a minute. And I, so I just want to be really clear that I do think that sometimes people weaponize um, presumption of innocence, a language, to try to silence legitimate opinions that are held by people who have come to a conclusion that they find personally his actions to be reprehensible. And I really want to respect that and say that that is real and fine. And that is not the same thing as censorship. What I have a much bigger problem with is the actual coercion of with Rumble as a media enterprise um, uh, from the, the state in particular. Because I also think, as even though it's frustrating, I'm sure, um, Elon Musk has dealt with this yeah. with advertiser withdrawal. At the end of the day, when you have an advertiser-supported business, you are always subject to the capriciousness of the public, yeah, the you're public at the behest opinion. of the whims of public emotions, which flow like the wind. You don't know if they're going to be left yeah. or right tomorrow. That, that is what on how it people is. Feel. And I agree. You're courting the mainstream. No, you, you really are. And I agree that people are entitled to their opinions. But you know what they say about opinions, and I can't use that language on the show. <laughs> but opinions shouldn't dictate whether or not a government is going to privately, or in the case which we know have that has occurred within our own country, or in the case of the UK, uh, privately or publicly try to coerce a a company to behave in a manner that the government believes is proper or in the interest of the public. The public, I believe, maintains a right to not download Rumble. They can sure. download X or whatever other social media sites up there. I mean, I think the marketplace will dictate whether or not Rumble will be successful in the months and years to come. The government doesn't need to intervene in order for that to take place. No. I think that that's right, but the reality is also that what Twitter has lost 50% of its market yeah. share as a consequence. And, and Elon Musk is talking about suing um, uh, the uh, ADL, ADL mm -hmm. uh, who he attributes the bad press to, um, which there's some questions there about whether that is really free speech. But at the end of the day, um, I, 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 that still might not bode well for these companies. It still could be that Twitter goes down or Rumble goes down because of public opinion and. That is but, just but the, the market courts, speaking. See, the issue here, Bree, is the courts cannot force a company to run ads on a platform. Right. No, I, I agree. The, so the, that the, is, and that, that's that's what's difficult about this. And that's this is the point that I was making last week. These folks just do not care about the financial implications of their behavior. And in, in the case well, of who's Russell, these folks. 
folks, meaning those who are against Russell Bland, who are applauding this, the right. government but bureaucrats. But that's not their job to care about the financial implications of their behavior. But, but, but no, I disagree with that. I think we all have a responsibility to check our opinions at the door. Again, I may dislike something. But I'm not going to allow my dislike of an individual or an individual's behavior to impact a business structure. See, I disagree. I think that boycotting is effective. I think that uh, boycott the boycott and investment movement in South Africa played a role in ending apartheid. Yeah, when apartheid. there's a net gain to the overall society, Brie, what is the net gain well, to the overall society by boycotting Rumble? That's sub or subjective, Shemichael. Is it, though? Yes, it is. Yes, it's subjective. People like... Megan Kelly and um, Candace Owens and thousands of women and people across sure. America who find Russell Brands, you can't get away from the fact that most Don't people watch find him. Well, that's what they're doing. They're not watching him, and advertisers are withdrawing because they don't want to be tarnished by Russell Brand's image, one way or the other, rightly or wrong, whether it's proven but, or not. And that's so the I don't problem, though, but the I don't, proof. That's but, my problem. But it's not. HelloFresh's job to make sure that Rumble is financially viable. It's not Megyn Kelly's job this to make sure that they're rising and falling on market and opinion. That's what I'm saying about advertiser-based businesses. It's, it is what it is. It's a tough business to get into. And that's why the Rumble business model, it's, it's curious to see, I'm curious to see whether or not it will sustain itself because their whole raison d'etre is to be Independent, not to bend mm -hmm. to the will of these, mm -hmm. uh, of these, some uh, of the of the government and other kind of social pressures. The statement that they put out in response to the letter that I read a few minutes ago was very strong. They said, um, while Rumble obviously deplores sexual assault, rape, and all serious crimes, and believes that both alleged victims and the accused are entitled to a full and serious investigation, mm -hmm. it is vital to note that recent allegations against Russell Brand have nothing to do with content on Rumble's platform, and they go on to say that they will not be deplatforming or demonetizing but, him in any way. Yeah. But can you sustain yourself in an advertiser-based model I mean, but most, that? But, but most companies depend on public image, whether it's Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whether it's Xbox, what I, PlayStation. What I'm getting to is I think what they're going to have to do is what Elon Musk ha has realized, is that if you're going to be a I don't care about public opinion kind of a platform, you, you need subscribers to weather the storm. You're going to have to have a subscriber page yeah, that's not a sustainable, that's not be able a, to pay a sustainable you money. model, though. That's not a sustainable For model. For many content creators like myself, I am so grateful for a platform like Patreon, where I have a subscriber base that pays me $5 a month to do a podcast, sure. so I don't have to worry about whether or not my video does well on YouTube, or whether YouTube demonetizes me, because people who actually care about me and respect me and my content mm -hmm. are going to be able to pay me no matter no, what. I, I, I understand that point, Bree, but I think it's just very dangerous, in my opinion, for companies to change and pivot every single time public opinion changes. That's, I, I agree, but this every is the situation time, Rumble's and, in. And for us not to say that the general public at some level has a responsibility, I disagree with but that. So now we're going to police the private opinions. Megan Kelly, I'm the mother saying, of a 13-year-old girl or 12-year-old girl. Brie, I'm not saying police, but what I am saying is to tell people to check your opinions in terms of the overall financial impact that could have on a private company. So what company. does that mean for someone like Megan Kelly? She's not allowed on her show to express her opinion that it's of unconscionable course, for a 30-year-old man to be she, with a 16-year-old girl? Of course she, she can, but expressing your opinion that you disagree with Russell Brand dating a 16-year-old and then saying, but you should also remove Russell Brand, those are two that, different things. But she's not saying right, that. Right, so I'm saying you can have your opinion while also not calling for a platform to deplatform someone. I, but this is the point I'm making. She's not calling for a deplatforming of Russia. She is, but Russia. a lot of people but are. But here's the thing. The Just, UK government, they but, are. But wait a minute, and I disagree with what the UK government says, but 
Megyn Kelly and many others who are simply saying in the first part that his behavior is deplorable to them sure. has the effect on advertisers who are also not the ones who have, been, have letters being written to them in this mm -hmm. instance. Advertisers are acting on public sentiment finding his actions distasteful. And that's, and that's going to that happen regardless. You can regardless. say, I dislike the behavior, but I don't think the guy should be deplatformed because right. I believe in freedom of but speech. Hello, I believe in justice. But HelloFresh isn't deplatforming. HelloFresh is deciding that they don't yeah, want HelloFresh associated but, but with Russell But they're removing Brand. their ad dollars from the overall right. platform. Because it's stigmatizing. That's a problem. They don't want to be negatively stigmatized by association with someone who is considered to be He's one person on an app with probably thousands of people. Right, so I think it's an interesting decision, for example, to pull your ads from Rumble. This is what I said earlier. Mm -hmm. To pull your ads from Rumble as an entire, as a whole, instead of just saying, I don't want my ads to run along Russell Brand. Which they could easily do. And people can then do a counter boycott. They can say, well, I don't want to use HelloFresh because I think that they are trying to coerce Rumble into deplatforming someone. And I think that's perfectly legitimate as well. But I don't know how you feel about that, like because you seem to be I mean, against the idea of affecting a business by doing a boycott. People could very well boycott ASOS and Burger King and HelloFresh because mm -hmm. they think that they are being coercive of another person's speech. They can, and but I, that's I, the way I, the cookie I, crumbles. They can, and I think they should. Because again, it goes back to my original point. Bree, let's say you made a statement on this program, and someone despises or dislikes that particular statement. Many and they, people are and they, saying and they begin, it every day. And they begin to boycott and they say, you know what, this is outrageous, she's a terrible person. They don't have to watch the show. And they can say, I dislike the statements, I don't like her as a person or me as a person, but that entity, they have every right to permit her or me to stay on this platform as long as we haven't broken the law. And I think people need to make that clear distinction for advertisers so that advertisers can make the better decision of saying, you know what, okay, people don't like it, but we can still continue to have our but dollars Michael, running on that platform. In that example, I think that's a responsibility people should have. Sure, Michael, in that example, if a host of this show or any other show turns off the audience, the audience stops watching, the viewership goes down. The, the financial interest of any organization because of advertisers and the desire mm -hmm. to have subscriptions and clicks and, and things is going to militate toward getting rid of the host that is no longer drawing the audience. And that's a financial decision that I'm, companies I'm, but, are allowed but I'm, to make. I'm, a company can make that decision, but I think distinctions need to be made by people with significant platforms in terms of their feelings about a person versus asking, or I, I should say sort of alluding to the idea that the person should be removed. Because by not saying anything, one could make the assumption that Megyn Kelly or whomever else don't want Russell Brand on Rumble. They didn't make the distinction that they do want fair. him on Rumble. I think it that's absolutely is feel fair. Like they can't have, I, I think that everyone can express their opinion. I don't think that this response to, you know, that the advertisers are going to be vulnerable, going to be sensitive to the interests of the public. That doesn't mean we have to silence the public or read not. into everything that Megyn Kelly says. It's a not. mother is allowed to say that she finds a grown man dating a Bri, I'm not disagreeing with that. I agree with that. Without being like, oh my God, she has to caveat everything that she says because God forbid it hurts some business I'll, somewhere. I'll give you an example. Anytime I'm, I'm on a major platform and we've had conversations about people that have been censored or removed from Twitter at the time, I would voice my opinion and say, yeah, I find the behavior to be atrocious. I don't like the behavior. But I'm not going to go as far as saying that person should be removed because I believe in the freedom of speech. And that's exactly or, what Megyn Kelly did. Most people aren't doing that. Brie. Well, then be mad at most people, but 
I don't understand. And do you not agree that people should have that responsibility to, no, to separate their emotional opinions? <laughs> well, a lot of those people do think that that Russell Brand should be deplatformed, and I disagree with that. So, like, yeah, that, they're, that, but they're allowed to say that. That yeah, is but, their free speech right as well. They're I'm, allowed I'm to not, say that. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that being a free speech. I'm simply making the point that distinctions should be made. You can voice your opinion and maintain all the free speech in the world and come short of saying this person should be deplatformed. You can voice your opinion and maintain free speech and say, but until there is concrete evidence, he should be able to maintain his position on that platform. And people have a responsibility, in my opinion, to do that. I would do that. Yeah. And I would hope others would do the same for me. I think that's a separate issue from... Um, I don't I, think so. I don't think you can separate them at all, Michael, Brie. you don't know what I'm separate... Even, I didn't even finish the sentence okay, about go what ahead, I was going to separate. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. It's a separate issue from what advertisers are contending with, which is just public sentiment. And, that's, and, and that is and what it is. And they're contending with that public sentiment for the very reasons I just laid out, because the public feels that there is no obligation to make distinct in this particular case or any case for that matter. They, no, they don't. And, and they should. And you can't, okay, well, you, it's your job to persuade them of that, Sure, Michael, but you can't dictate what the public says or how they, how they I don't articulate disagree, their but opinion. I think it should be all of our jobs with a platform to educate the public on separating their personal opinions and making fine. distinctions I, I can, in terms of freedom that. of speech. And I've tried to model that, and I think that Megan no, Kelly also tried to model that as well. So let us know what you think about all of this and, and what you think the role of advertisers versus the government versus <laughs> social media companies should have when someone behaves badly. Stick around, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Hollywood writers and studios have reached a tentative deal to end a nearly five-month-long strike, but no deal is yet in the works for industry actors. For, as for the Writers Guild Agreement, the Writers Guild of America West wrote on Twitter, the WGA and AMPTP have reached a tentative agreement. This was made possible by the enduring solidarity of WGA members and extraordinary support of our union siblings who stood with us for over 146 days. More details coming after contract language is finalized. According to a new Reuters Ipsos poll, Americans broadly support the current Hollywood and auto workers strikes. 58% of Americans support the first ever simultaneous strike by the United Auto Workers Union against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, and 60% of Americans support the strike by screenwriters and actors for better pay and protections Reuters writes. Here's what a Fox News panel recently had to say about the UAW strike. The UAW, the auto workers, including benefits, currently make $65 an hour. That is $20 more per hour than Tesla and $10 more per hour than people who work for, say, Toyota and Honda in the United States. Sean Fain's original offer to the Detroit Three would have put them, including benefits, at $150 an hour. And Charles, I just want to remind, in terms of if you're feeling sorry for, say, people who work at General Motors, after the American people bailed out General Motors and Chrysler for $80 billion, General Motors still owes the American people right. $11 billion. The, uh, the union workers at GM who were there then, the existing workers, did not take a pay cut. Right. They never took a pay cut. So where's our money, your workers? I still, I still think that's a beef with the management, not the workers. Joining us now to discuss is staff writer at the Jacobin, Alex Press. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So, Alex, I want to just jump in quickly here. Charles was saying something towards the end that it's an issue with the management and not the writers. Would you agree with that? 
You mean not the auto workers? Or the auto workers, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the auto workers maybe at GM did not take a pay cut, but real wages are down across all three companies. And, you know, Sean Fain, the newly elected president of the UAW, has been very clear and I think really good on this. He says the companies own all of this, all of the disruption, all of the bailout costs. The companies own all of it. Why does he say that? Well, these executives, their pay is up 40 percent over the past few years. Prices for autos for consumers are up something like 35 percent. Workers' wages, they're up maybe 5% over the past decade. So that extra cost, whether we're talking about at the consumer end or we're talking about bailouts, these workers are not responsible for that. That money is going straight into the CEO's pockets. It's going straight into the investor class through stock buybacks and other kind of pay incentives. Um, and if we want to point a finger at anyone, I think you know you don't have to be a full-throated supporter of workers, though I believe you should be, um, to understand who is at fault here. And I think even as we saw some of the Fox people themselves even understand that it's not the workers to blame. So, Alex, that's interesting that you raised a 40 percent pay increase for the CEOs. A few days ago, the CEO of G GM was asked that exact same question. And she said, well, it's because of a performance bonus. Ninety-two percent of that pay increase was because of a performance bonus. There's no way we could pay workers what they're asking for. If we did, we would have to close down plants, and we would also have to let go thousands and thousands of employees. What's your take on that? I mean, again, to be clear, what is she talking about? She can't take a several-million-dollar pay cut and give it to workers? I mean, this is one pot of money here. Um, she is getting a performance bonus. One, sounds like she's not performing very well if they can't afford to pay living wages to their workers without shutting down the plants. Two, if she is really concerned about this company and these workers, then I think she can survive on a wage a little closer to what her workers make rather than 400 times what they make. Um, also, so I think this yeah. is at, from the jump, it is just completely a lie. Sean Fain says every word out of the CEO's mouths is a lie. And, you know, I think in this case, again and again, that's been proven true. Yeah, I remember there was a statistic going around last week, I don't know if it was from um, Sean Fain, who was pointing out that if you look at what the profits for this year to date, not even for the full 2023 cycle uh, of the big three were, that you could actually double all of the employee salaries and still have a lot of profits to spare uh, for the company. Additionally, my understanding to, to uh, Sher Michael's earlier question was that back in 2008, there may or may not have been actual cuts to salary, but the workers themselves uh, made a lot of concessions in their contract, including giving up their, a lot of their pension rights. So to frame it as um, the workers didn't take a hit and it was only the uh, American taxpayers that we're bailing people out as opposed to the workers themselves who are willing to say, okay, we'll do what needs to be done to keep these plants open, seems to be a little bit of a misrepresentation, no? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important point. One of the big things that a lot of people are familiar with is that these workers gave up cost of the living allowances. So that means they are not getting raises to meet inflation. They also, as you mentioned, a lot of these newer workers don't have pensions. They don't have decent health care upon retirement as their bodies are broken down and and destroyed by these jobs. These are not easy jobs. I think everyone knows that. It is very normal for an aging auto worker to have numerous health problems, and then they are just discarded upon retirement and no longer with the care and pensions that they need to survive. You know, that's Alex, just a few yeah. of the things. There's also the introduction of a tier. Um, I think it's worth explaining to viewers what a tier in a contract is, which is you have a worker who's newer, newer hire, working beside more senior workers, making far less money per hour without the benefits, without all of these things that built these jobs into being famously decent jobs. 
that don't require college degrees. And what do you think that, that does for solidarity in the plant and for the existence of the union? When one worker is making, say, half of what his coworker is doing for the same work, it's it's completely toxic and it's impossible for a union to subsist on that. So that's mm-hmm. another thing that came out of these bailouts and these concessions. Now, the companies had always said, we're profitable, we will give those things back. They lied. Um, so the workers are taking it back. Alex, I want to ask you uh, to update us on what's going on with the new um, writer strike news. I know it's just a tentative agreement and a lot of details aren't yet uh, out yet, but what do we know um, or what can we anticipate about the terms of this agreement? And maybe you can remind us a little bit about uh, what the main concerns were for the writers on strike. Yeah, so the writers on strike had a whole bunch of concerns that I'm sure people have heard about over the many months they've been on strike. You know, they need pay raises. They, just like everyone else, have been subject to the loss of real wages. You know, wages are down something like 20% over the past decade for the average writer. Um, they want new residuals because it used to be that way, say, when the writer of Seinfeld, when that re-ran um, on television, on linear network television, they got a residual. That was a payment that often got them through that year because it's very hard to work full year round in this industry. No one does it, right? You can't get gigs year round. And so those residuals would tide workers over through the droughts. Now with Netflix, you know, there's no such thing as a rerun. We all know you can watch Seinfeld indefinitely if you wanted to. Um, So these workers are not getting any money, no matter how successful their shows. And it has really led to a massive decrease in their average wages. Those are just a couple things. I mean, artificial intelligence regulations is a big one. You know, minimum staffing for writer's rooms and minimum length of contracts is another. You know, there are so many here because this is really about a industry that has fundamentally changed with the rise of streaming, um, with Netflix, with all of these things that people subscribe to and you can't remember your login. It's so inefficient <laughs> and it has been terrible for the workers. It has only been good for a few of the people at the top. And you know how contracts work with unions. It's only every few years. And certainly during COVID, a lot of unions kind of put things off, put off this sort of final standoff because workers weren't there. They were disorganized. Everyone was remote or otherwise scattered. So this is a long time coming, right? There's a lot to rectify. And these workers, it's why they struck for, you know, almost 150 days now. And we don't know what's in the tentative agreement. You know, it's been described as having significant raises. They'd already won a fair amount, you know, over the past few months. But they were holding out for more because they know this is, you know, in the language that writers have said to me again and again, this is an existential question about the future of the industry. And they're not willing to cave just because they want one or two things. So we'll see. I mean, I've, I've heard there's new requirements on the minimum number of writers in a writer's room. I've heard that the raises are significant. The AI regulations are significant. But right now, the bargaining committee of this union is respecting the press blackout because their focus right now is just making sure the membership knows first. And I think that's a really good thing. You know, I often say that unions are the last democratic institution the working class in this country actually has. It's theirs to control. Their leaders are elected by them and they're going to go through the process. So we'll see that leadership vote and discuss this contract over the next couple of days. And if they think it's good enough, they will then hand it to the members to vote on whether to ratify it or not. I mean, Alex, you know what's fascinating about this to me is Democrats, Republican voters appear to be on one accord as it pertains to this particular issue. Uh, despite hyperpartisanship, tribalism has sort of segmented us. Uh, but yet, as we continue to see wealth inequality spread, more and more Americans are starting to singularly focus on this particular issue. You have inflation increasing right now. Wages haven't increased with inflation. 
Where do you ultimately see this going, Alex? Not just with these two instances, but in a long term. I'm talking five or 10 years from now. Do, do you see at some point where Americans sort of come together to say, we have enough, we need to make more to take care of ourselves and our families? I mean, I certainly hope so, right? I mean, I think, oh, my connection may be a little unstable. Apologies to everyone. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a long cycle, right? We saw Sanders' campaign peak in 2020. We saw these Black Lives Matter protests, uprisings. We saw young people basically being introduced to the language of class politics and really a sense that inequality is not going to be solved by whoever you elect at the top. The state is far too captured by the capitalist class in this country, and they're sort of, you know, stooges in Congress. And it takes actual exercise of power in your workplace, in your tenant organization, in your community to wrest that, to extract that power back. The tight labor market right now is contributing to why we're seeing these strikes and these new unions. And my hope is that they generate the momentum that's required to actually, you know, sort of reverse the trends we've seen. This is all exciting. These are major historic strikes we're seeing, but the unionization rate is still low. And yet the majority of workers not only support these strikes, but say that if they could join a union, they would. Now, the problem is they still can't. Labor law is incredibly pro-employer here. It's very hard to organize a union. It's very hard to wage a successful strike. And so I think what we have to see is as these movements and these strikes go from victory to victory, they also then get the elected officials to start changing the laws to make things fairer and on an even playing field. So when you talk about five, 10, 20 years, well, it's a question of does that cycle start picking up? You know, do, does this feedback loop start? And if we get that, I think we get the sort of change that we actually so desperately need and that people on the general basis, you know, not elected politicians, not commentators, but the average person absolutely fundamentally knows and wants, which is that there is more than enough to go around. There's just a matter of how to get it. Alex, speaking of corporate capture at the top, uh, Joe Biden made news by announcing that he planned to join the picket line. Donald Trump plans to head to Detroit to do some counter-programming, an event that's not on the picket line, but which will uh, happen at the same time as the Republican debate. Uh, Cornel West, running on the Green Party ticket, has indicated that he plans to go, and Marion Williamson has also indicated that she plans to go and join uh, the auto workers on the picket line this week. What do you make of the news that Joe Biden is going, and does this bolster his characterization of himself as the most pro-union candidate of all time. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a great win for the union. You know, the UAW has said, you know, and it's the new UAW, which again, people should know this is a new leadership erected, elected in the first democratic elections in the UAW's history, right? This was a massive win for reformers, rank and file members who wanted a more democratic, small d democratic union, right? And they won, and now they are approaching politicians like Joe Biden not with deference, but with militancy. They have said, hey, if you want to come us on the picket line and be in solidarity, anyone is welcome, right? And so I think the Biden administration was sort of shocked by that. And it's a huge win that they think it's necessary to do so and that Biden will be joining them. Hmm. You know, I do want to say, as far as Donald Trump here, um, you know, President Sean Fain has been very clear. Um, he is a working class leader. Um, he put out a statement saying, Everything this union is doing right now, everything this strike is about, is against the billionaires and the millionaires who we do not elect to solve our problems. They cannot solve working class problems. They don't understand living to paycheck to paycheck. So it was not, there was no uncertain terms here. He has no interest in Donald Trump because Donald Trump has no interest in working class people. 
Um, you know, even this event he's doing, it's not some sort of sanctioned UAW event. I've yet to find which workers he's actually speaking to. He's just going to Detroit. I'm sure he will find a worker there to listen to him. Um, so I just want to be clear here about, you know, the UAW has said anyone is welcome. I can't imagine we're going to see Donald Trump on a picket line, though. Mm. Thank you so much, mm. Alex. This has been really informative. We appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Senator Bob Menendez spoke before reporters this morning where he was defiant against his second indictment on federal bribery charges. I recognize uh, this will be the biggest fight uh, yet, but as I have stated throughout this whole process, I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. On the subject of thousands of dollars in cash found in his home, Menendez said this. Third, for 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. When it came to those Gold bars they found in his apartment, though. Menendez had less to say. Very much. Prosecutors have accused the Democratic senator from New Jersey of accepting bribes, including luxury gifts, a Mercedes-Benz, aforementioned gold bars and $500,000 in cash in exchange for his power and influence. A growing number of lawmakers in Congress are calling for Menendez to step down. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. Let's watch. I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. As you mentioned, consistency matters. It shouldn't matter whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. The details in this indictment are extremely serious. They involve uh, the nature of, of not just his, but all of our seats in Congress. And while, you know, as a Latina, there are absolutely ways in which there is systemic bias, but I think what is here in this indictment is quite clear. Meanwhile, Senate Democratic Whip Dick Durbin refrained from going as far as to call for Menendez's resignation. Let's take a look. These are, in fact, uh, indictments that have to be proven under the rule of law. The person who is accused is entitled to the presumption of innocence, and it's the responsibility of the government to prove that case. I said that about Donald Trump. I'll say the same thing about Bob Menendez. But the bottom line is the Senate Democratic Caucus has a hard and fast rule. When indicted, you lose your position in leadership or chairmanship of a committee. And that is what has happened with uh, Senator Menendez. Menendez has been stripped of committee chair assignments, but he is refusing to step down, telling reporters this morning he will continue his run for re-election. Not sure, Michael, I saw you chuckling there a little bit as, as we, you know, heard the the whole, you know, he's not proven in court, so yeah, it's Dick premature. Durbin, I mean, come on. His but, comments about President, former President Trump. But, sure, Michael, isn't that 
uh, you know, consistent with the argument you were making about uh, Russell Brand that until yeah. these these yeah, it's consistent for sure, Michael, but it's not consistent for Dick Durbin, who's well, he, had the exact opposite to say about Donald Trump. Well, he's saying differently. What did he say about Donald Trump? Because in that clip, he's arguing that he also thinks that Trump shouldn't have to. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, he's saying that now because it'll be like the well, pot he, calling the he's kettle saying black. That he said that then. He's yeah, saying but he's that's not consistent. that is not what he said. I've seen Dick Durbin on Meet the Press and a host of other places saying it's crazy that Republic that this guy may become the nominee of a major party. Again, I mean, that's been a, a, a consistent talking wait, wait, wait. point for many Democrats. But isn't that different saying that a person shouldn't run versus saying if someone should be impeached or kicked out of office or forced to resign um, because of various allegations against them? Aren't those different? So, for example, I would say maybe I agree that mm -hmm. he shouldn't be pressured to resign until some charges are proven. Sure. But the idea of running for re-election seems to be in poor taste. Is that an analogy? I, I mean, sure. But like, this is what I'll say, though, about Menendez, Brie. The last time this happened, about 10 years ago, Menendez went on to win re-election by yeah. 12 Oof. points, Brie. New Jersey. 12 <laughs> points. And so I think Menendez is like, look, catch me if you can. I mean, he said, it's, <laughs> this is crazy to me. He said, it's a, the emergency cash was money I took <laughs> out. I made over 30 years ago. My family in Cuba, which, I mean, Bree, it's hard to kind of say something against that. But what about the gold bars, man? I, th that's <laughs> what's so funny about this. I mean, it's not funny. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's like a cartoon, oh, it is. burglar it version is. of criminality. Like, you expect him to see, to see him in a picture in, like, a striped black and white <laughs> outfit with, like, a bag with a dollar on it. I mean, it's <laughs> like, like Bob Chapo. I think I heard one person say on, on uh, Sirius XM POTUS channel yesterday. I mean, this is an, an unbelievable story. But I will say this. Menendez deserves his right in court. Sure. Um, I think as one, as several defense attorneys have made this argument on various other networks, including on News Nation a few days ago, uh, that the Bob McDonald Supreme Court case could be in Menendez's favor in terms of him acting in appropriately within the confines of his position as a U.S. senator, telling the Department of Agriculture, this is what I want, that's not unusual, or telling the White House, you should appoint this particular attorney over one you're already considering, that's not necessarily unusual. The government's going to have to prove its case that he did those things for the cash, the code bars, the Mercedes-Benz. The mortgage payments, I mean, we'll see. Yeah, so let's let's just run through, for people who missed the coverage of this yeah. uh, last week, what the indictment actually alleges. Um, the indictment claims the couple had an improper relationship with three New Jersey businessmen who allegedly paid the couple in exchange for Menendez to use his influence in Washington, D.C. to their benefit. The couple faced three criminal counts each, conspiracy to commit bribery, conspiracy to commit honest services fraud, and conspiracy to commit extortion under color of official right. Um, the indictment also charges the senator with providing sensitive U.S. government information that took steps that secretly aided the government of Egypt. Egypt yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, which, you know that I got to say for our audience, this is really interesting to me. I don't know how familiar you guys are with uh, Egyptian-U.S. relations, but if you aren't, Bree, the United States, we've sold hundreds of millions of dollars of arms to the Egyptian government. So it's really interesting to me that the DOJ is saying that Menendez acted inappropriately in Egypt's interests over the United States' interests when the U.S. does indeed have a relationship with Egypt, at least in terms of military arms sales. Well, sure. I mean, I think the argument is that part of why the U.S. has had this 
the relationship yeah. with Egypt. The reason it sold so many arms to Egypt was because of Mendez's influence. So that I mean that those things are going together. So <laughs> the Mendez alone. So the New York the New York Times ran this piece just an hour or so ago. So I haven't uh, had a time uh, chance to read it. But the title of it is For Egypt Mendez Mendez was key to access to billions in U.S. aid when the annual allotment of up to 1.3 billion dollars faltered even a sliver. Egypt found an ally in Senator Robert J. Menendez, who on Friday was indicted on these bribery charges. Yeah, and, and could it be? Could it not? And look, I'm, I'm not arguing for or against Menendez, but I just want to play a devil's advocate here, Bree. Could one not argue that Menendez thought that Egypt was a place in northern Africa that needed support from the United States and wanted to advocate for Egypt to have that financial and military support against its surrounding adversaries any more than one is currently making that argument about the Ukraine? I mean, I, Ukraine, I don't really see much of a difference here. I think the difference, Drew Michael, is that instead of just advocating for it out of the goodness of his heart or because he thinks that's what American foreign policy should be, he did it in exchange for a collection of gold <laughs> bars and, and dollar bills like stuffed into the lining of his I'm sorry, I don't know where the dollar bills were stuffed exactly, but they well, were Well, they hidden. were in some of the jackets. We, they're <laughs> Photos, yes, there are photos. All right, okay. I didn't want to. I didn't want to smear uh, the good Senator Menendez. Senator Menendez. Uh, but yeah, that's the issue. It's the pay-for-play scheme. If, if yeah. you are willing to do something because it's in the best interest of the nation, then why is it that you're collecting a Mercedes-Benz, yeah. gold bars, and wads of cash, seemingly in a quid pro quo scheme? Allegedly, yeah. And, and look, I would say, look, guys, we're, you know, we're sort of laughing about this because it is a fun topic to discuss. Uh, but I do think, Bree, for the average American who's watching this story, they say this is Washington as normal. Yes. The D.C. insiders, politicians, lobbyists, you know, they're taking money from their wealthy friends to do what's in their personal interest versus the interest of the country. And I will also add that I think, and part of the reason why Menendez may not have to resign is because voters have become numb to this. Yeah, I do think that's they, true. They've become numb. Like, you know what? I don't particularly care. The voters of New Jersey appear to like Menendez. His approval ratings that I was able to find from a couple years past were really, really high. There's a strong uh, Latino population in, in certain parts of northern Jersey. And so I think he not only will maintain his current position, but I think the guy could get reelected again. Yeah, it was interesting to see. It looked like AOC was responding to a question specifically about how ethnicity plays into yeah, this. which he played into. And she, to her credit, is like, yeah, sure, Latinos face various issues, and there can be a kind of coded bias about the criminality of Latinos, but I don't think that's what's going on here. But this just looks like that's what he's a criminal doing. thing. But, but, it, but I will say from a messaging perspective, and yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on this, I think it's smart for Menendez to hunker hard and then pivot to his community for support. I'm a Latino. Why are they really coming after me? And he sort of sends those interesting messages. Well, other people who don't look like us are doing similar things. They aren't going after them. You look at look at all the people who are behind him, all members of the community. I mean, what are your thoughts on the optics and messaging of that? I think the optics of gold bars <laughs> and dollars stuffed in various places around your home are, huh? are going to prevail. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, obviously, in New Jersey, but I, I think that's kind of exploiting your identity. But you get the pivoting, though, of what he's oh, doing? Oh, no, I get what he's yeah. doing. The yeah. question is whether voters are going to see through it. I think that that's kind of slimy and yeah. manipulative in a way it to is. exploit the real issues that Latinos are facing, the most uninsured uh, ethnic group in the country, for instance, to be used to shield and protect yeah. someone who allegedly who there is a great deal of evidence to suggest committed a crime. Bob says, catch me if you can. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're rising right after this.
Canadian parliamentarian is apologizing after a standing ovation was given to a 98-year-old veteran allegedly belonging to a Nazi division in World War II. The blunder took place during Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the country and address to Canada's House of Commons. Veteran Yaroslav Hanka, quote, stood and appeared to salute when he was recognized by House Speaker Anthony Rota, who introduced Hanka as a Canadian-Ukrainian war hero. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian-Canadians, Ukrainian-Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. His name is Yaroslav Hunka. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. As you can see in the clip, Rhoda's words received a lengthy applause and lots of waving from the floor, including from Zelensky and Canadian Prime Minister, Minister Justin Trudeau. Yesterday, Jewish groups condemned the honoring of Hunka, saying he had been a member of the Waffen-SS unit, which was comprised of Ukrainians, according to the Washington Post. Heinrich Himmler, who was a leading member of the Nazi party in Germany, formed the Waffen-SS. The group was involved with mass shootings, anti-partisan warfare, and supplying guards for Nazi concentration camps. Rhoda apologized yesterday for what occurred on Friday, writing in a statement, quote, I recognize an individual in the gallery. I have subsequently become aware of more information, which causes me to regret my decision to do so. I particularly want to extend my deepest apologies to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I accept full responsibility for my actions. The Friends of Simon Weisenthal Center for Holocaust Studies said in a statement, the fact that a veteran who served in a Nazi military unit was invited to and given a standing ovation in Parliament is shocking. Shocking, to say the least, Bree. I couldn't believe that. Almost a minute, it seemed like, of applause. Yeah, I, I, if this were, I think, an isolated event, I, I think that it wouldn't cause as much of a viral impact mm -hmm. the way it did over the weekend, on, on Twitter at least. But it does feel like part and parcel of a pattern. Uh, sometimes I don't fault the people involved. For example, there was that incident um, with uh, John Stewart where he was giving a medal to someone who it turned out was affiliated with Nazis in some know. way. Yeah. You know, I don't think that, you know, a, a Jewish man knowingly did that, sure. you know. But, you know, it, it, we keep losing track of the Nazis. And they keep turning up be all that over many the place. Nazis across America. I mean, I mean and, I and, and the New York Times keeps running, and, and various papers of record keep running photos of Ukrainian troops that include people with um, insignia, Nazi whether regalia. it's tattoos or yeah. regalia, mm -hmm. et cetera. And at a certain point, it's it's abutting this counter narrative that says, "Well, there's not a Nazi problem in Ukraine. That's only a 
Putin puppet yeah. narrative that's used to disincentivize people from wanting to support and that may the not be true. Ukraine. I mean, a lot of conservatives have been saying for quite some time that that is a problem in Ukraine, and a lot of folks on the corporate left, I'll put it that way, out of respect just for you. The, just liberals, not on <laughs> the, the left, the, 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 just liberals, liberals. the liberals have stated, oh my God, that this is just a conspiracy theory right. of Republicans buying into propaganda from Putin. Right. And here you go with Hunker being applauded by the entire Canadian parliament, Bria. I mean, as someone who's worked for presidential candidates, I've advised members of Congress in the House and Senate, how in the world, Bria, did no one on the staff look this guy up? It, Not it, a single person. It's very confusing. It, it, there's also this weird um, way that Russia is talked about. If we're talking about Russia and in the context of World War II, yeah. and you're talking about someone who was fighting Russians in the context of World War II, guys, did we not all do high school history? <laughs> they were on our side. Right, right. The Russians were the good guys. I mean, like 20, I think 20, close to 30 million yeah. Russians yeah. died in World War II. Yeah. They took the biggest hit. And people forget that. 27 million. I mean, that. it was devastating. And then we decided afterward, oh gosh, we want to do Cold War fighting. We can't let socialism win, so we got to start the smear campaign. But like, how quickly we forget. So the idea that, I mean, you, I, I just, I don't understand how this can keep happening. And that combined with this other kind of Nazi problem where, look, I get a lot of pushback, you know, from Robbie and from some people in the audience. If I want to raise the issue of why it seems like these Nazis also keep popping up at various shooting events that are being done by Nazis that say they follow prominent um, right-wing commentators like Tim Poole. There are um, Trump sitting down with Nick Fuentes and people who are kind of self-described Which he also didn't know in that case. Sure, sure. But again, how is the, how does this keep happening? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know? I, I don't know. I, it, it feels like—I I understand conservatives as a whole not wanting to be tarred by the mistakes that are being made by a few. Sure. But it also feels like the response to when these incidents happen isn't a full-throated condemnation in many instances of Nazism as an ideology. Instead, we've seen this from even um, Elon Musk. There's this argument that, well, it's not th that anti-Semitism isn't actually growing, that the Nazi movement isn't actually growing, that there's nothing to see here, folks. Which, I mean, people debate and dispute. Elon Musk is, ob is obviously arguing right now that the ADL is wrong yeah. about the increase of um, anti-Semitism and other kind of hate speech on, on X. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like there's a lot of Oh, if I'm Tim Pool and somebody shoots somebody on my behalf, like on my name or says they like me, just say, oh, Nazism, gross, wrong, bad. You know, that's an interesting point, but I have to say, I think most conservative people, I can't speak to individuals with large platforms or political leaders. I mean, you can even point to Ron DeSantis in Florida. A lot of people in the black community criticize him because he refused to say the guy was a racist mm -hmm. directly. Um, I don't agree with that. And when I travel the country, not only to major cities, but rural parts, because I do a lot of firearms-related activities, people despise that stuff. And yeah. I hear from a lot of conservative voters who do not look like me who say, we don't want this being representative of the yeah. party. We want to get rid of this. Those people don't speak for us. So, Bri, I can't speak to individual leaders, but I can absolutely say the overwhelming majority of conservative voters that I have spoken to that I know do not espouse those I, I believe that to be true, which is part of why this is so confusing. I, I don't know why this keeps happening. I don't know why the photo editors at the New York Times and the like don't. They should have. They should have a checklist. Yeah. A, a Nazi symbolism 
checklist before they start running? Because how many times can this happen? But you know what, Bree? I would say, I, you know, I think we need to really pause some of the funding to Ukraine to investigate this. I understand from an international perspective why the U.S. is in the midst of this proxy war, and I don't want to get into Russia-China relations and, and all of those reasons, because that's not the, the root of this conversation. But I don't want American tax dollars going to a country that may have members of its armed forces that are proud Nazis. And I think most Americans would probably say, yeah, I'm with Sir Michael on this. I don't want my tax dollars yeah. going to Nazis either. And in fact, back in 2018, and I confronted Ril Khan about this on an episode of my podcast um, maybe about a year ago, mm -hmm. there, con Congress did ban sending arms to Ukrainian militia that were linked to neo-Nazis. Back in 2018, and now we forgot. before this war, wow. this was a big <laughs> enough issue that the House passed, it was tucked into a spending bill, mm -hmm. a ban on U.S. aid to Ukraine from going to the Azov bat Battalion. And now, uh, you know, subsequent to that, I think uh, maybe last summer, last spring, uh, Max Blumenthal, who frequently is a guest on this show, a journalist, he confronted uh, Ro Khanna uh, outside of Congress about U.S. Yeah. funding to to Ukraine on the basis that you voted for this years Just ago. A few years you ago. understood what that this was an, years ago, and now you're everybody is linked arm in arm and saying Nazism isn't a problem in Ukraine. Look, I personally am a critic of how much spending is going to Ukraine. But even if I weren't, there's a way to make the argument that says we should fund Ukraine, but we have to be more careful about who is getting these weapons. I mean, absolutely. And they're not even doing I that. I mean, Bree, you said 2018. I can guarantee the Nazis didn't just dissipate between 2018 and 2023. But I think Congress is more vested in damaging Russia. Uh, the military-industrial complex, which I strongly support as a big Second Amendment guy, those guys are vested in making a profit, which is nothing wrong with profit. But again, not to the extent of us in sort of reaffirming Nazism by supplying them military arms and hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, I thought we defeated the Nazis almost 100 years ago, and here we are, a new modern iteration of them. We're saying, well, we're going to overlook this, even though we didn't just a few years ago, because we want to cause harm to Russia. Again, we need to pause the spending brief. Look at what we looked at in 2018. What has changed? I would be willing to bet Bree has probably even gotten worse because if you remember the Africans in Ukraine, how they would not allow them I to board the trains, and it wasn't until that stuff hit the news in the West that Zelensky and others stepped in and said, wait a minute, we have to help get these folks to Poland. They went to the uh, Polish border and they said everyone could come in but you. So clearly there is some issue in Ukraine that, in my opinion, is not in sync with our ideals as Americans. I couldn't agree more. All right, we'll let you know if there's any follow-ups on that particular shocking story, and we'll have more rising for you after this. Please do stick around. Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton is still in the news for reasons. She sat down with MSNBC's Jen Psaki to talk all things her friend, of all things rather, her friend Vladimir Putin and what she claims to be his role in her election loss. Let's take a look at this clip that went viral over the weekend. Vladimir Putin uh, mm. has obviously your friend, your friend and mine. <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. He has uh, intervened in our election in the past. Right. It's not something, as you experienced firsthand, it's not something we talk about a lot. Do you fear that that is something that could be happening for 2024? And do you think we should be talking about it more? Well, I think we should be talking about it more because I don't think, despite all of the 
uh, you know, deniers, uh, there's any doubt that he interfered in our election or that he has interfered in many ways in uh, the uh, internal affairs of other countries, funding political parties, funding, you know, political candidates, uh, buying off, uh, you know, government officials in different places. He hates democracy. He particularly hates the West, and he especially hates us. And he has determined that he can do two things simultaneously. He can try to continue to damage and divide us internally, and he's quite good at it. Mm. And sadly, he has a lot of apologists and enablers uh, in our own country, people who either don't see the danger or dismiss it out of hand, or maybe agree with some of the uh, you know, positions he's taken uh, on certain things, including uh, his barbaric invasion of Ukraine. And so dividing us and then trying to seize territory uh, in such a uh, brutal way to try to expand his reach, to try to restore the Russian empire, if not the former Soviet Union, that is who he is. Hillary seems to know more about Putin than the rest of us. Will the supposed Russian interference happen again? Well, here's what Clinton had to say. I fear that, um, you know, the Russians have proved themselves to be quite adept at interfering, and uh, if he has a chance, he'll do it again. Joining us now to weigh in is organizer, writer, and contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Bryce Green. Bryce, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, guys. Bryce, let's start with this um, statement that I think triggered a lot of people, this idea that we don't talk about Russian interference very often. Does that ring, ring true to you coming from Jen Psaki? Uh, well, it, it triggers me. I mean, <laughs> one of the main things that talk uh, that was a talking point in the wake of the 2016 election was just how much Russia interfered with the election. And they d devised a clever little turn of phrase. They called hacking the election, uh, which didn't really say much, but it left things up to the imagination. It allowed the anti-Russian sentiment that runs deep in America, especially since the Cold War and has been ramped up since then, it allowed that anti-Russian sentiment to take hold of the imagination. So people assume that, oh, well, maybe Vladimir Putin hacked into the actual machines and changed the vote totals. Or maybe it was those, you know, little crappy memes that changed the way the election ran. Uh, but, you know, any honest, close look at what actually happened in 2016 shows that well, uh, A, Hillary Clinton's own campaign strategy and her unlikability was the primary factor in her defeat. And to the extent that Russia had anything to do with our election, it was uh, extremely minor. I think the last report showed that the amount of money that was spent on ads uh, on behalf of this IRA, the Internet Research Agency, uh, was something like $2,500. Now, this is an election in which billions and billions of dollars were spent. And people are saying that this $2,500 was, uh, you know, the, the deciding factor in the election. And since then, we've seen uh, more and more of the hysteria turn out to be false. Uh, one of the ways that people pushed the idea that Russia was interfering in our politics was that there was this dashboard called Hamilton 68. And Hamilton 68 would, uh, it aggregated several different Twitter accounts. Uh, and then labeled them Russian disinformation actors and then tracked what they were talking about. So if these accounts were talking about, oh, well, release the Devin Nunes memo or something critical of U.S. foreign policy, 
well, then it would give MSNBC, uh, CNN, BuzzFeed, all the usual suspects. It would give them the ammunition to say, well, look at how the Russian bots are boosting X, Y, and Z. Look at how the Russian bots are getting, uh, uh, changing the American discourse. But, you know, it's part of the Twitter files. It came out that even Yoel Roth, who was a, you know, a high-up Twitter executive at the time, he called it, quote, bullshit. And he acknowledged that many of the accounts that were being labeled as Russian disinformation bots were uh, just regular old accounts that simply had an opinion or took a position that didn't uh, adhere to the dominant narratives of the you know, uh, American elite at the time. And so it, it was allowed to raise a bunch of fear, was allowed to scare everybody. And even now that it's known to be false, I mean, still, you still have people saying, oh, well, there was so much Russian interference and they're going to do it again. It's absolute madness. So, Bryce, all that being said, we're talking about 2016. Why do you think that Hillary Clinton is doing an interview like this, trotting up these same old kind of excuses for her own performance, for why the Democratic Party failed that year? What do you think, what role is she playing in this conversation about Putin specifically in terms of the current electoral and geopolitical context? Well, she's certainly seeding the narrative that if anything happens in the next election in 2024, that the, you know, the power establishment, the anti-Russian power establishment in America doesn't like, well, then they have, uh, you know, they can go back and say, well, see, Hillary Clinton warned us that hmm. the Russians would uh, interfere uh, without, of course, any evidence, without any uh, serious inquiry into actually what's going on. It allows the Democratic Party to instead of looking inward at their own failures, at their own uh, inaction on key issues that voters care about, it allows them to throw that aside and blame an external actor. And Putin is a convenient scapegoat because, well, he is currently the villain of the day in American politics. You know, the invasion of Ukraine was a major propaganda coup for the Americans. And, you know, this was even written about before the invasion happened. It was talked about how the U.S. should refuse to negotiate on Ukraine because either Russia wouldn't invade, and then they would look bad, or Russia would invade, and then they would look bad. And that would allow, to, uh, the, allow the United States to strengthen a, a pro-NATO consensus across both Europe and in the United States. And talking about this election interference narrative is extremely potent for a lot of people. Uh, there was a poll, a Rasmussen poll, just last year, talking about how still 47% of voters believed that Russia likely changed the results of the uh, 2016 election. Uh, that's pretty astounding. I mean, mm. half the country believes that a foreign actor changed the results of the election. Uh, and, of course, it can be used to, like I said earlier, seed the narrative and allow the Democratic Party to uh, avoid any soul-searching. So they'll so, never change. So, so, Bryce, to that point that you just made about soul-searching, do you think this is an effort by the former first lady, former senator, former secretary of state, former presidential candidate uh, to sort of set up the conversation in case Joe Biden doesn't win in November of next year to be able to say, well, he didn't win because of Russia, not because the American people want to go in a different direction, not because they don't like Joe Biden's policies or maybe even his running mate? Right. I think you're exactly right. And, you know, uh, it, it's funny you should mention that it's not just Russia that they're doing this with. They're also doing this with China. There was an article in The New York Times uh, last week or the week before 
uh, talking about how, uh, you know, Chinese government disinformation agents are using new sophisticated methods. And they cited this report from NewsGuard, which is, you know, deeply affiliated with the U.S. security state. On its board is, uh, you know, famous, notorious liar Michael Hayden. Uh, well, NewsGuard uh, published a report talking about how there were a few different accounts that were posting AI-generated images to boost their uh, narratives about how the uh, the U.S. was responsible for the fires in Maui. Uh, you go read this Times report, and you're like, oh, wow, the Chinese government is doing all this heinous stuff. Uh, but if you look at the NewsGuard report, the report that the Times is basing their coverage off of, there is actually no evidence of the Chinese government involvement. Uh, the Times just, you know, asserted this. Uh, but, you know, it, it allows, again, that narrative to be uh, to be seeded, that there is a foreign actor directing the thoughts and the opinions of the American public. So if someone is very critical of what the U.S. is doing, if someone's very critical of Joe Biden, if he ends up losing the election, well, it's not because of anything they did. It's not because of any inherent flaw in our politics. It's not because we hate the people and we continue to show them that every day. It's because Xi Jinping is telling people what to think or Vladimir Putin is telling people what to think. And it's pretty effective because, you know, it's the new Cold War. People hmm. are scared, rightly so, that their world is changing, that things are going uh, every which way, uh, and they have very little control over it. So Putin is a very useful scapegoat, and so is Xi Jinping. Mm. Bryce Green, I really appreciate all of your media criticism and the reporting that you do over at FAIR. I encourage our listeners to go and check out more of your work over there. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. President Joe Biden's approval rating continues to be in a free fall, with his poll numbers equally catering. NBC political correspondent Steve Kornacki dissected a new poll highlighting that Democratic voters want someone other than Biden to run in 2024. Here he is on Meet the Press yesterday. Let's take a look. There's clearly a lack of enthusiasm about the president himself because we asked primary voters on the Democratic side, do you want options next year besides Biden? 59% said yes, they do. This is not a normal number for an incumbent. We asked the same question a year before Donald Trump sought re-election of Republicans. Only 37% wanted more choices then. That's a very high number. All right. Well, the new poll also revealed Biden faces an uphill climb against several Republican challengers. Let's take a look. If Republicans go forward and nominate Trump again, this is what the rematch in our poll would look like right heat. now. 46, 46. And you remember, in 2020, Joe Biden actually won the popular vote by more than four points. And how about this? DeSantis, who sort of pitched himself as the electable version of Trump to Republicans, fares worse against Biden uh, than Trump does. We also tested Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador. She actually leads Joe Biden by five in our poll. <laughs> Biden's ongoing struggle in the polls is culminating with fears growing within the Democratic Party and among those in the president's circle, per NBC News, which reported they're also worried about third-party candidates who could thwart Biden's re-election prospects. Ooh, okay. I, one thing really jumps out at me. I got to mm -hmm. ask you this off the bat. Yeah. What do you make of Nikki Haley being the one with the greatest clearance yeah. over Joe Biden in a head-to-head -head matchup. I'm, I'm not surprised for a couple of reasons. She comes off as balanced. Mm -hmm. She comes across as neutral. And I would say, Bree, on the issue where Republicans keep losing time and time again on abortion, mm -hmm. 
her articulation of her uh, opinion, her position, I think the first debate was clear. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at some of the tr live tracking during mm -hmm. the debate, independent voters said, yeah, this is reasonable. Mm -hmm. She's fair. This isn't extreme. And so I think people have internalized that and they're thinking this woman could lead the country. She was a governor. She was a UN ambassador to the United Nations, which a lot of foreign policy experience is needed right now as we continue with this ongoing war with proxy war, I should say, with Russia. You have the China issue. So I think there are, there are a lot of compelling things, a lot of compelling things about her background yeah. that people like. So I think everything that you said is true. And I would just add that during that debate, another moment that I thought showed a great deal of integrity was when she was willing to criticize the Republican Party. Yeah. I love when leftists and a, the very rare occasion a Democrat is willing to say, yeah, we're a part of the problem, because it speaks to a willingness to be solution-oriented and not just be doing partisan team player politics. So I really like that from her as well. But what's confusing to me is if you asked me before any poll came out what the motivating issues were going to be in this race, on both sides of the aisle, I would say that the people are looking for a candidate that is more anti-interventionist slash isolationist with respect yeah. to foreign policy. Um, and people want someone who is going to condemn the endless blank check from the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, Nikki Haley is not that person. So while I agree with you that she seems balanced, uh, her view on those issues is diametrically opposed to the view that Vivek Ramaswamy articulated in that debate and which got him a lot of plaudits and to a lesser degree, Ron DeSantis. And that came out, like the, that tension came out, we talked about it on the show after the debate, that of all people, O.J. Simpson, when he weighed in on what yeah. he thought about the debate, he said he really liked Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley, Nikki thought Haley. they should come together and have a joint ticket because he liked, I think, what you identified as the positives of Nikki Haley and didn't seem to understand that there were some really core tensions between the two on their ideological, um, uh, their, their ideological framework when it came to, comes to foreign policy. So I think the question is, are Republicans going to have a trade-off there? Are they willing to take someone like Nikki Haley, even if she doesn't match what the general public wants with respect to the war in Ukraine, just yeah. because of the abortion issue. I mean, you know, I think so. And I think another issue where she struck the right tone, and you mentioned where she criticized the Republican Party, it was on taxes. It was on the deficit, and the right? deficit. Yeah. And, and that's a big deal, Brie, for so many Americans. I mean, that, that's an issue where Joe Biden really, really struggles. Just 37% approve his overall uh, job performance. The overall majority of Americans, Democrats and Republicans alike, believe that they're worse off financially because of the Biden economy. And so I think Haley sort of sort of finding that neutral tone, if you will, of saying, I'm willing to sort of, to sort of be an, an, a neutral arbiter and be critical not only of Democrats, but also my own party in yeah, terms of our— Absolutely. People look at that and they say, this is a woman who understands the problem, number one, and then number two, understands why the problem and how the problem impacts me. And I think that's really, really important. I will add really quickly, though, something that I thought was really fascinating about this. Uh, and I think um, Gallup did a very fascinating article on this a couple weeks ago on Biden. Not a single incumbent won re-election with an approval below 40%. Mm. Not a single one. And so if you're Democrats, if you're Joe Biden, you have to wonder is it sort of clear that the president can't win right. re-election based on historic precedent? I think that's a really good point. And part of why I think it's so frustrating to folks that there is this 
commitment rhetorically mm -hmm. that Democratic pundits have to pretending like there's not a primary going on. We've heard yeah. people like uh, Simone Sanders say there will not be a primary. There will not be a primary. There is no primary. And we saw just recently uh, there was a poll, I think, was it an, an ABC? No, it was an Apple News poll that just came out over the weekend that very conspicuously omitted Marianne Williamson in its entirety, even though she ranks higher than about half or even more than half of the people who were polled. She tweeted out uh, yesterday, Dear Apple News, I am polling higher than the majority of candidates listed on your candidate tracker. Please correct your list to reflect the reality of the race. That's just a microcosm wow. of the way that she's been facing a blackout by the Bri, media. Is there any particular groups or subgroups that she's doing better than Biden with? I don't know about better than Biden, but she's pulled almost equally with him uh, wow. with respect to young voters, voters under 30, who aren't even that young, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. And she and RFK Jr. both have been spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, the Democratic Party, chose to change the primary schedule. Yep. Joe Biden's not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. Somebody not named Joe Biden is going to win the state of New Hampshire uh, in all likelihood. And so there's a real opportunity there for these insurgent candidates to capture some media oxygen, even though they're being shut down. I do think that part of why there is this media blackout is because there's so much concern about the rise of a third-party candidate, candidate, given how tight the margins are between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, the presumptive nominees. But ironically, it feels like they might be making that more likely as they are so clearly putting the thumb on the scale in the primary. You've had RFK Jr. talk about being tempted into a third-party race doing a, yeah, a dirty that. break. Yep. Mm -hmm. There was some coverage, I believe, in the New York Times uh, where they revealed that there had been a sit-down between RFK Jr. and the head of a Libertarian Party, who we had on uh, the show last week, uh, Ms. McArdle, where they had been having conversations, allegedly. So he's really considering this. I mean, you know, people just aren't enthusiastic about Biden. And this is a fascinating thing. We, we talked a little bit about the shutdown. And you would think that Republicans would take most of the blame. Let me read this quote from Gallup. Uh, such is down on Biden's sentiment that if a government shutdown occurs at month's end, meaning this month, 40 percent say they'd chiefly blame him and Democrats versus 33 who would say they would blame Republicans. Mm. I mean, this just goes to show you that people are not very happy about the direction of the country under Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that uh, history precedent would suggest that the Republican, the people who caused the I, shutdown are going to take the I would the agree, Bree, but I, I would say history would also lead us to believe that a challenger of the same party would not be successful against an incumbent. I don't agree with that. I think a lot of the precedent that we once relied upon to make our acute analysis, yeah. I think we can throw that all out of the window. Yeah, I, I mean, look, at this point with polls suggesting that uh, Biden's going to lose anyway, and with the precedent suggesting he's going to lose anyway, even if precedent also suggests that a, a challenged you know, um, a, a challenger to an incumbent is also going to lose, it's lose, lose, lose. So <laughs> at this point, you might as well try might to make well. history. Yeah. yeah. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention mm -hmm. that, uh, on this topic, a Rasmussen poll showed that 33% of Democrats might vote for RFK Jr. as a wow. third-party candidate. So if you can get 33% of Democrats, he obviously has a, a strong standing among independents, yeah. and a lot of Republicans really like him and want an alternative to Donald Trump That's as true. well. Uh, he does have the foreign policy views that match up with most of the country with respect to Ukraine, at least. So 
Democrats have might have might have sowed the seed for their own destruction I would say that and not benefits, just allowing there to be an open primary. I would debates. say that that benefits Trump if that indeed happens. And if you think about Biden, mm. he, he barely won the state of Georgia. You think about Pennsylvania, Arizona. I mean, you're talking about margins that are only a few thousand votes. People forget that because we always talk about the popular vote. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden can't afford to lose a single demo group, Latinos, African-Americans, young voters. And based on the data you just laid out, whether it's Marianne Williamson or RFK, it almost seems mathematically improbable, Bree, to argue that Biden has a clear path to the White House again. And I don't know who is advocating for him passionately. <laughs> Nor do uh, I. As we all start to pay our student debts <laughs> uh, next month. Thank you, Biden. More rising for you right after this. podcast giant Joe Rogan seemed close to endorsing Donald Trump for president on a recent episode of the Joe Rogan experience. Let's watch. President for four years and the country was in a, a, a great economic situation. Yeah. And it looked like his policies were actually effective and that it looked like the unemployment was down. All business mm -hmm. was building. Regulations were being relaxed. More things were getting done. You know, when you look at it from a policy perspective, if you just look at it on paper, what he did was effective. A lot of people think it was effective. You don't like him as a personality, so you ignore that. Don't do that. Look at it in terms of a policy perspective. People liked the ideas that he was putting forward. Rogan, of course, did not hold punches when making his case against the incumbent president. I, I never thought that Biden was going to make it. I, ne I never thought that he was going to be functional. You know, like regardless of what what kind of power the president actually has, and it appears under Trump, the president has a lot more power than we think they do. But under Biden, it's like he's handled, like he's just out there yeah. talking and saying, the real problem is Donald Trump. Donald Trump, what he's done is terrible. He didn't offer. It's all nonsense. It's like everyone's treating him with kid gloves because they. So this is a significant. I shouldn't turnabout. laugh, right? I shouldn't laugh. Oh, no, I think I'm it's fine laugh. to laugh at a Joe Biden impression. I mean, because it's it's Joe Biden's choice to take the future of the democracy in his hands when yeah. there have been so many credible reports about him not necessarily being cognitively or physically able to do the job. The cover of the New York magazine, the newest cover of New York magazine that came out today has a picture of Biden, uh, Pelosi, Donald Trump, and uh, Mitch McConnell in a race with walkers yeah. because the the crisis of our gerontocracy has become literally cover a cover story, front page news. So I think all of that is fine. But to the Joe Rogan story, this is a significant departure from the stance he used to have on Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. He has consistently said that he's very resistant to having yeah. Donald Trump on. He has never been on the program. Back in 2020, he gave a kind of tacit endorsement of Bernie Sanders, who he did have on the program. Mm -hmm. uh, all the other political candidates clamored to come on afterward. Yep. He didn't want to have them on because he wasn't ideologically aligned with them and he felt like they were fake. So. I have, it's an, it's an interesting question. What is it specifically that's caused him to going from, I think that Donald Trump is so dangerous or pernicious or whatever, that I don't even want to give him the platform of my show yeah. to saying I might endorse the man. I mean, Bria, I, I think Rogan is realizing what the, a great percent of Americans are realizing, and that's just that they don't believe Donald Trump, rather. They don't believe that Biden, I should say, has the mental faculties to lead the country. These are not sure Michael Singleton's views. These are just what a lot of people in the streets yeah. are saying, as they say. And I think in terms of the economy, 
You know, granted, people may make these arguments that the president doesn't directly impact the economy. I would somewhat disagree with that. The president also uh, appoints the Fed chair. Uh, presumably, a conservative president would appoint someone else who would have a different position on how we should tackle inflation versus continuously raising rates. I mean, we're expecting rates to raise again before the end of the year. Uh, Powell also stated rates will raise more next year. I mean, so if you're in our age group, you're trying to buy a home, you're paying down student debt. You can forget about it. And so I think Rogan is, is speaking what many Americans believe, which is the economy's bad. We're spending a, lot, a ton of money in Ukraine. Immigration is a problem. Hundreds and thousands of people are coming into the country. We have no clue who most of them are. And Joe Biden is either on the beach in Delaware or he's at the White House doing only God knows what. Yeah, I'm open to the idea that there's some policy that's better than Joe Biden's sure. respect to the economy. What I do have a big issue with, and you alluded to this, is the idea that presidents are largely or yeah. even significantly responsible from the economic climate that yeah. they inherit. Like, I am no friend of Joe Biden. I don't think that that is in dispute. Mm -hmm. I am not <laughs> a Democratic Party voter. <laughs> I, I spend all my time on the show criticizing Joe Biden. But I honestly don't think that the economic conditions that we've been living in are because of him. And it's obviously attributable to the global, global pandemic, pandemic and yeah. recession and uh, supply chain but you crisis. Could criticize, but you could criticize the positions of the Fed, who was appointed by Biden. And, sure. and Powell has if, a lot of influence that, on, on the economy. If you do that, then people—Joe Biden used the word policy like seven times in that quote yeah. without describing a single policy that Donald sure. Trump had when he was in office sure. that magically made the economy better or a policy that he has articulated for if he gets elected again that would improve upon but, what but Joe Biden is doing. But overall, economic confidence at the business level, small business level, was indeed greater. Consumer confidence was greater before COVID started, well, I will add, of course under it was. Trump— <laughs> Than under Biden. But of course it was. We had an unprecedented global pandemic. Yeah, yeah. The economy and Trump of the probably would have won if it were not down. for COVID, I would say. Right. So I mean it, it, this does feel like look, I I I what I what I would like to see if Joe Rogan does have Donald Trump on is to ask him very specific and pointed questions like Joe Rogan has the capacity to do about how his economic plan differs from what Joe Biden has done. What would he have done differently than Joe Biden in the pandemic? Yeah. Would Joe Biden would Donald Trump have passed some of the relief programs that so so did so much to save so many Americans that have child poverty. If he were in power, would he continue those programs, unlike Joe Biden, who is now having to justify why he's now presided over the doubling of child poverty? I mean, remember, a lot of the funds that people received during COVID, that was under the Trump administration. I now, a lot of Republican agree. governors disagreed with that. But Trump did make sure most Americans were whole during that during that uh, process. I agree. Donald Trump ended up sending out more checks numerically mm -hmm. than Joe that, Biden that did because he reneged on his promise. Would do, would Donald Trump be willing to do that again? He's been advocating for more tax cuts that disproportionately go to the the wealthy. It's Donald Trump's deficit that 1.7 trillion dollars in tax Don't cuts disagree with that the tax added to the cuts. deficit. What Nikki Haley is talking about mm -hmm. when she mm -hmm. called out the Republican Party during the debate is he going to be accountable for that too? Can Donald Trump credibly make an argument about how Biden's spending on pandemic relief, much of which did go to helping working people stay afloat and was very popular, that that was worse spending or that was 
a policy that somehow was worse than all of the tax cuts that he did when he was in office, 85 cents of which, for every dollar of which, went to the top 1% and exploded the billionaire class. Now, Joe Biden's also responsible. Yeah. The COVID spending also inflated billionaire wealth. Yeah, but I, would say, but, but I would say, Bree, that Trump could argue that overall consumer and economic confidence domestically and internationally in terms of our international but investors. what is he going to do? Buy, wait a minute, hear me out, who buy Treasury notes. That, I would argue, does benefit the everyday person if overall consumer or overall economic confidence, I should say, is high. Investors are going to open more plants. They are going to invest more in hiring workers across the country. Now, I know some may disagree with the idea of trickle down, but that does indeed trickle down and benefit the average person. And but, that is a legitimate yeah. argument to make. But if the argument is that Donald Trump's face is so inspiring that it makes the markets rise, then make that argument. But uh, Joe Rogan sat there mm -hmm. and said, policy, 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 sure. and didn't point to any policies. So if, if it's just vibes and the markets are inspired by Donald Trump vibes, fine, fine. Yeah, but, but, I, but again, I, I, <laughs> I would say a policy position, if, if I were advising the Trump White House, would be in terms of basis interest rate point increases. We're not going to do that any longer. I would say the Fed chief at your point needs to also adopt that position. That is a direct position. I would also argue securing or addressing the issues at the border. That's an important issue that has ec that have economic implications for regular working people, particularly those in the South. I would also add not sending hundreds of billions of dollars to the Ukraine and redirecting those funds for communities that need them more so to be more viable, that benefits the average American person. So, so there absolutely is an argument well, that no. could be made from a policy perspective. But but we're not making that argument, and those are a lot of issues that aren't the economy and inflation, which was specifically the target sure, there. Sure. I would just say at the end, it is not true that cutting aid to Ukraine benefits Americans unless you also agree to spend more domestically, which Republicans, as a small government party, are not willing to do. They voted against <clears throat> all the most popular policies in the Build Back Better relief. They fought all of the, the spending tooth and nail, even though now Republican politicians on the local level are standing there at the ribbon cuttings and applauding all of these infrastructure projects and acting like they are responsible for them. So this is a bait and switch. I just want to be very clear to the American people. If you like the spending that has come to your state, if you liked the, the, the checks that came your way, if you liked the temporary, the Medicare expansion that allowed you to keep health care through the pandemic, if you liked the um, um, distributions that were given to families to cut child poverty, then don't believe just because someone says money on Ukraine would be better spent to America in America that they're actually going to follow through on that promise well, if their whole record demonstrates mm -hmm. that they do not want any domestic spending. Well, I wouldn't say that they don't want any domestic spending. I mean, I, I would argue that access to small business loans, small business grants were easily, easily accessible during Trump's administration But the PPP loans were part of Biden. the American Rescue Plan under Biden. Again, I have a lot of problems with that program. But well, PPP was initiated, though, under Trump. Okay, so we can have this shared responsibility issue, but Trump can't simultaneously say Biden and inflation is bad because he did too much spending during the pandemic. Yeah, but my but point, but my point is access to capital was easily accessible, which is what I should have said before, under Trump than Biden. Why? That, that, that is a fact. Why? What do you mean, why? We had, we had greater no, access no. to capital I, then asking, versus the inflationary. But I'm, I'm asking why. If the reason is because we had a global pandemic, then that's not a policy well, choice that's being made by either of these that, men. That, I would not necessarily disagree with that, that the president can't control a global pandemic. But again, what I would say to that is the president can adopt policies that will make 
access to capital more accessible. When you increase interest rates, that makes borrowing harder for everyday people. No, that I, is a policy I, position. I, I agree. But what's Donald Trump's policy position on interest well, rates? Well, he should listen to Sher Michael. He, he doesn't that's say my, anything. That's my position, that's okay? That's the point. He doesn't say anything. So I hope that um, Joe Rogan nails him if he does have him on the show and asks him some questions about that. And also ask him some questions about these labor issues, the strikes all around the country um, yeah. that are very popular, but which Donald Trump uh, promulgated policies uh, to weaken labor rights. Um, but, but, is that going to be a tension But people can change their positions. Trump has now come out and said that he stands on the sides of workers. And I think one can have a previous position and when new evidence comes out, you can say, wait a minute, we didn't right. make the but best Michael, decision here. Let's pivot. And I think that's what sure. Trump is doing. He could hypothetically do that. He could hypothetically come out saying that he wants to have a transgender uh, vice okay. president. Right. He well, could now, do a lot now, of things. Now, now you're pushing it, Bree. But, Michael, there's now you're pushing zero it. evidence of him being interested in that. So I don't think If that were the case, he wouldn't this. be going to Michigan next, or what, this week? And, and you next guys should week? definitely listen to our, uh, I think it's this week, mm -hmm. uh, we should listen to our, on Wednesday, our coverage with um, a labor expert, a later writer, yeah. uh, Alex Press, who pointed out that he is not joining the picket line and that the leader of the UAW union, uh, Sean Fain, has explicitly said that Donald Trump and his pro-millionaire, pro-billionaire policies are exactly the problem with this country and why they're going and on to, strike. And to my point, a good leader will recognize the mistakes of their previous positions and change to say there is a need to do better. I think the former president should be given an opportunity to make that adjustment. We have to see what he says when he meets with those workers. He won't be meeting with the union workers, to be clear. He's not joining the picket line. It's not so clear. So Biden joining the picket line all of a sudden is going to make everything better? No. I have at no point complimented or you have it, but I'm just said that Biden, out there. that's a good idea. In fact, off camera, I said that I think that perhaps it's not a good idea to even allow you did. him I'll give you to join credit. the picket line. She did say that. I will give me her credit. <laughs> All right. We've got to wrap. Uh, but please come back and join us. Sure, Michael will be here with me tomorrow, yes. as he will all week. We'll also have Michael Schellenberger joining us to drop some bombshell tea on new UAP whistleblowers. You won't want to miss that coverage. And later in the week, make sure to join us Wednesday night for our 2024 debate breakdown. The Hill's Michael Schnell will speak with strategists and reporters about how the candidates did and what it means for the GOP primary going forward. Oh, Michael Schnell, Michael Schellenberger, Sir sure, Michael. Sure, Michael. <laughs> Holy smoke, you guys are trying to trip me up. Okay, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care, guys.